Good morning. Welcome back. We weren't sure if anybody was going to show up today. If you're a guest, last week we did online only. And uh, just for Labor Day weekend, we gave all the volunteers. We said, let's just take a break. Let's rest. Let's give the building what we call, like, in like churchy language, a Sabbath. In the real world, we just say a break. You know, I don't know. We use weird words in church, right? So uh, it was great, but it's good to see everybody. Thanks for being here today as we launch our series. Hey, look, out in the atrium are some signs that look like this. One, this side says, be a goldfish. This side says, be curious, not judgmental. And these are opportunities for you to take a picture. So you go grab somebody, snap a photo, put it on your social media, help us get the word out about our TED Talk series. Would you do that for me today? Okay. Some of you are like, what's social media? I don't understand. I get it, you know, but that'd be awesome. I appreciate it. That'd be really good. So it's great to see you. If you're a guest today, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Ryan, and I'm the lead pastor here. I just get the opportunity to serve our team and our church in just kind of guiding along in this peacemaking path of Jesus. And so inside of the program there is my cell phone number. If you are a guest today, or if we've never had the opportunity to get together, have coffee to meet, shoot me a text message, and I would love to do that. It's one of my favorite things to do, is to get together and and uh, get to know your story, share a bit of my story, the story of Crossroads, and how we're all intersecting. So that is wonderful. So we're starting to talk today about Ted Lasso. And we have this series called The Book of Lasso, where we're going to spend some time every week looking at different characters from this wildly popular television show, uh, and, and then seeing what, how does it intersect with the wisdom of like these ancient texts that we call scripture, right? And so if you're unfamiliar, how many of you are a little familiar with Ted Lasso? A little familiar? Um, how many of you are super familiar? Like you have a problem, yeah. right? You have a problem, I understand. Uh, and how many of you are like, I'm not even sure if I'm coming back next week. I don't know anything about this Ted Lasso guy. And I gotcha, wonderful. Raise your hand up, that's good. So here's the deal. I'm gonna try my best to make it no prerequisite required, all right? So Ted Lasso, really quickly, is the story of an American football coach who, is, who gets hired to lead a British soccer team. Now, this show premiered uh, in August of 2020. I don't know if y'all remember 2020. <laughs> y'all remember that time? Uh, so 2020, and it really captured the hearts of the world. Uh, because it was such a hope-filled experience. And since it was released, it has won 11 Emmy Awards. And since it premiered in 2020, get a load of this, Ted Lasso has drawn more than 25 billion minutes of viewing just in the United States. So if you don't know what Ted Lasso is, that's not on me, okay? <laughs> That's just not on me. I'm sorry. It's an Apple TV show, and I know not everybody has Apple TV, but you could get a 30-day free subscription and binge it, you know, if you wanted to, right? Um, and, and I think what makes the show so beautiful and why it has connected and resonated with so many people is because it tackles this wide range of human experiences, right? And it does so with honesty, humor, and it really is quite intelligent. It's not, you know, it doesn't take a, uh, some easy path to tackle big topics, but it really gets at them head on. I mean, an amazing wide range of topics from divorce to depression to anxiety to revenge, uh, the experience of what is it like to be a member of the LGBT community in a society that says you're safe, but you don't feel safe. And it tackles all of these wonderful, wonderful topics that need to be talked about. And it's created lots of conversations 
around the world, right? And so this week, what I want to do is look at the situation that launches the whole story, kind of the story behind the story. And that is a story of two characters in the show, Rebecca Weldon and Rupert Mannion. And Rebecca Weldon and Rupert Mannion are married. They own a soccer team together. And Rupert has an affair with a, a, a very, very young woman and leaves Rebecca. And in leaving, Rebecca produces all kinds of shame. It's a real public affair. These two characters are public figures. They, they own a sports team. And she's hurt and she's very wounded. And so Rebecca, wounded by Rupert, decides the only way that I can hurt him back, I want to destroy him, the only thing that I can do is to destroy the one thing he loves, the Richmond Greyhounds. And the Richmond Greyhounds are the football team, the soccer team uh, in London. And that's the premise of the whole thing. And so she goes out and hires this American football coach who knows nothing about football, knows nothing about soccer, and brings him out with the attempt to destroy the one thing that Rupert loves. And that's kind of the foundation. Now, isn't it interesting that I think we all connect with that at some level? Because we all know that people are often the like, greatest contributing factor to the pain in our lives. If you're a fill-in-the-blank person, that's your first fill-in-the-blank, right? contributing factor. Like if we think about our lives and we think about the emotional pain that we experience, most of it comes from people. And it comes from people that we value, people that we care about, people that we've invested into. You think of the situation with Rupert and Rebecca. They were married for years. They had a business together. And we connect with Rebecca. Why? Because we all have that instinct. We all know the joy of revenge. Right? If we're really honest with one another, we know that an eye for an eye will heal us. An eye for an eye will set the world right. But I wonder if we could take a moment and say, well, what wisdom would Scripture offer Rupert and Rebecca? What wisdom would Scripture offer us as we deal with the pain and the hurt and the heartache in our lives? Anybody in the room never experienced pain or hurt from another human being? All right, I just want to make sure to today's topic was relevant. Uh, so if it's not, I totally understand. Check out, right? So I want to look at a few lines from a letter that was written by a guy named Paul. If you're new to church, new to faith, uh, every week we just explore some wisdom from the Bible. Uh, I'm not a person who believes the Bible is a good rule book. I think it's actually if I can say it, a terrible rule book. It can be quite confusing at times. It can be a little ambiguous, but it is filled with wisdom. It's filled with wisdom as to how our spiritual ancestors thought about God, interacted with the world. There's so much we can learn. And it's basically our tradition says this is the best we have in written form. Like this is the best we have that we believe gives us an understanding of ourselves, an understanding of God and the journey that we go on. And so the Bible is divided up in a couple different parts if you're not familiar with it. But this book that I want to look at is found, it's not really a book, it's called Romans. It's the letter to the Romans. A guy named Paul, who probably we could consider the founder of Christianity, he went around starting these churches in these different areas of Asia Minor. And one group was this church in Rome that he didn't start, but he had heard about it and he wanted to go visit it. And so he writes this letter to the Romans. And it's kind of Paul's most kind of probably misinterpreted letter, to be quite honest with you. It's his like biggest theological letter, big weighty themes in there. And I just want to look at a few verses from Romans chapter 12. Now, believe it or not, Paul did not write his letter with chapter and verses, right? We put those in later so that when we got together as a group like this, we could easily find it, right? But Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 17 through 21, this is what I think Paul would say to Rebecca. Like if Rebecca made an appointment with Paul, 
and said, here's how I'm feeling about Rupert. This guy's a, you know what, I don't know what to do with him. I'm so hurt. Here's what I'm thinking about doing, right? I think Paul would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And at that point, I think Rebecca would stand up and walk out of the room, right? Just like most of us do. We say we believe the Bible. We say we follow the Bible or try to follow. We don't. Let's be honest, right? And so here Paul says, don't repay evil for evil, but take thought, I love this statement, for what is noble in the sight of people who believe like you, of people who look like you, of people who have the same, who live in your neighborhood, of people who grew up with the same spirituality as you, of people who have the same amount of money as you, as people who vote the same way as you. No, what does Paul say? He says, think of what is noble in the sight of all. And if it's possible, I love that Paul's like, it might not be, but hey, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, your part in the matter, live peaceably with all. And what we see here is Paul, right? This leader whose life was changed by an experience with God. This leader, Paul says, listen, the peacemaking path, it requires a noble perspective. Right, what Paul's telling the Romans, and I think by extension us as people who are trying to live in this path of wisdom that Jesus gives us, is that if you want to follow this path, you have to be able to have a noble perspective. You have to be able to see the world through different lenses, through different eyes. Paul uses that phrase, noble in the sight of all. Why? Because peacemaking is complicated. <laughs> Responding to evil is complicated. Responding to pain is complicated because if we just ignore the pain, if we ignore the victim and go, well, you know what, let's just love, then what happens is, well, eventually we'll create more victims. We're, we're ignoring the truth of pain. And, and some of us have been a part of religious communities and a spirituality that really harmed us. It led us down a path of thinking forgiveness and, and not taking vengeance just meant letting people go about continuing to harm us. But what Paul says here is you got to think of a response that no matter who's looking at it would go, oh man, I wish I could have responded that way. That's a noble perspective because we can't just ignore evil in the world. We can't ignore our pain because it will just come back and haunt us. Now, Rebecca certainly did not believe that, <laughs> right? She certainly believes in the story that it is her responsibility right? She certainly believes that her response to the pain that Rupert caused was in her best interest. It didn't matter about what other people thought, right? She went about her business. She ignored the pain that destroying this team would cause every player, every staff member, all the fans. It just didn't matter to her. Why? Because her perspective wasn't noble. Her perspective was built on her own pain, her own hurt. And so Paul goes on and he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave room for, tricky phrase, the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this is a, a verse, right, that if we're not, you hear the cricket, right? Let's just honor that. There's a cricket somewhere that we can hear, right? Okay, good. Now we all know that. Wonderful. We can move on. I know y'all are thinking like, does he know there's a cricket in here? I'm aware of it. If it's distracting for you, imagine for me, right? what were we talking about? Okay, Ted Lasso, Rebecca, right? Now listen, Paul says, never avenge yourself. And he uses this phrase, leave room for the wrath of God. Now this verse has been, I think, oftentimes mistranslated, misapplied because it's seen through a literal lens. 
And, it, and when we oftentimes when we take passages like this and we don't consider the historical context with which they're written, the worldview that was at play, we get an image of a God who's just ready to throw lightning bolts, all that stuff. But what I want to get at first is just what Paul's saying here. The heartbeat of what Paul is saying is that more human evil, right, will never solve the problem of human evil, right? What Paul's getting at here is that human evil, actions, returning evil for evil, will never solve the problem. And if we pause for a second and think about it, we can recognize that more war, more violence. If I, re- if I get angry at the person at work who gets angry at me, right, that's not going to help anything. It's just adding, what, fuel to the fire. That's why we have that statement. Now, the modern mind, as we go past, as we think about, like, okay, we're post-enlightenment, we think about the world differently, we see the world a little differently than Paul, a little differently, a lot differently than Paul and his contemporaries, And so what the modern mind, right, those of us that are trying to follow the spiritual peacemaking path of Jesus, we might call the wrath of God like consequences for our actions and behaviors, right? You've got to remember that Paul lived in a time where the gods were fickle and the gods were moved by people. And and if there was rain, it was the gods. If there wasn't rain, it was the gods. If something bad happened to you, it was the gods punishing you. And over time, and in Jesus, and as we've grown in humans, we go, wait a second, like this is why earthquakes happen, right? But what Paul's deeply getting at is that evil actions will ultimately bring negative consequences in our lives. And I think we can all agree with that truth, that at some point it will circle back around, legal consequences, broken relationships, broken trust. And Paul trusted in that cosmic truth. He trusted that even in his context, where he thought, leave room for the wrath of God. He knew you have to just kind of leave space to let the universe work the way the universe works. The way that love flows, the way that the universe works, the way that it has been created to function. As soon as you step in and decide to provide your own consequences, your own brand of justice, we have a problem. And so today we might still hold that underlying belief, right? We might still hold that ethic of what Paul's getting at here, that evil will eventually catch up with the evildoer. And we don't necessarily have to believe or go, you know, understand the how in the same way as Paul. Does that make sense? I just want to pause for a second, because if we're not careful, we present a picture of something that God is not in Jesus, right? We don't think of Jesus as wrathful, right? Yet we we proclaim as part of our faith that Jesus is the best picture we have of God in the flesh, so we, we interpret things all together. So I just want us to understand, like, there is room for what Paul would call the wrath of God, what you might call karma, <laughs> right? That there is this idea of what goes around, comes. we understand there is the law that's built into the universe. There is the law of sowing and reaping. We reap what we sow, right? And what, what Paul's saying is, God doesn't need any help. <laughs> God doesn't need any help. Now, Rebecca certainly didn't believe this either, right? She thought she had to set things right. It was up to her. If she didn't act, Rupert would go on without any consequences in his life. She was responsible for punishing him. And Paul says this. Here's the thing. Rebecca, you're going to feel it. And she did. Because the guilt and the shame and the problems grew in her life the more she tried to actively destroy Rupert. As more, the more she tried to hurt him in her own vengeance and in her own way of returning evil for evil, she ran into this issue where she started feeling all kinds of pain and hurt. 
And so Paul offers an alternative. This is everybody's favorite passage that we see in the Bible. He says, here's what you do. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you'll heat burning coals on their heads. What we know about this phrase, burning coals on their heads, is we don't know much. There's like six or seven different ways that people interpret it. It seems to me, though, that the best way of interpreting this is that it's an idiom that really means it's like a peacemaking, that it actually helps a person, that by placing burning coals on their head was a positive thing. It diffused a situation. It allowed a person to see you better. It was a healing space. It wasn't a punitive thing, like, oh, we're going to take these burning hot coals and burn them forever. <laughs> That's not what this is saying, right? It's an idiom, and it's mentioned in Proverbs and in other places. And what Paul's getting at is that the, the peacemaking, peacemaking means not responding in kind to evil, but responding in kindness. Right? When we respond in kind to someone, we just go toe-to-toe, right? Eye for eye, that kind of thing. But Paul's saying, nope, that's not how this works. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets, right? The way Jesus understood his scriptures was it all points to this very simple phrase. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Jesus did not say, do to others as they have done to you. Yes! (laughs) It's why Revelation is a little problematic the way it gets interpreted in some of some of our context in the Christian tradition, because it seems to be the opposite of what Jesus says here. Jesus says, oh, no, no, hold on a second. And in fact, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, you've heard it said. In other words, your Bible tells you an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but it's wrong. I say to you, don't resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Jesus is offering a completely alternative way to life. And it's in alignment with what Paul is saying, don't seek vengeance. You, 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 you respond with kindness. But Rebecca, oh boy, she was not interested in killing him with kindness right? That's a wonder. Oh, just kill them with kindness. How many of you are like really hot about an issue and somebody says that to you? You want to just kill them, (laughs) right? You know what? You just got to kill them with kindness, right? There's a side of you that's like, well, I'm going to kill you. Like, you don't think I know that? I just need you to shut your mouth and listen. Just be present with me in my anger, okay? Just be present with me in my anger. Be present with me in my hurt. Rebecca was not interested in the peacemaking path, right? She had no way no way to deal with her hurt and pain other than bitterness and spite and vengeance. She was blinded by her pain, blinded by her hurt, believed that revenge was the only way that would heal her. She thought the exact opposite of Paul. She thought, if I just destroy what Rupert loves, oh, I'll get it, I'll get him. But it was actually damaging her own self, her own sense of identity, her own well-being. And Paul, in his brilliance, knew that this is where it would lead because he ends this little section in his letter with this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Like, that's what Paul's getting at. He's like, if you go down this path, you will be overcome by that which you hate and you will become it. See, Paul believed deeply that vengeful behavior was evil and self-destructive. Might feel good for a moment, might put a smile on your face, but at the end of the day, it will just chip away at you. It'll destroy the very person you and I, we want to be. See, when we're overcome by evil, we become evil. 
And the only way to overcome evil is with love. And here's what's beautiful. We see this in this story of Ted Lasso when Rebecca comes clean. And, and she tells Ted what she's been doing. She has this beautiful moment. And Ted actually forgives her. Ted actually responds with kindness. It's crazy. And why is that? Because Ted knew something, knew a deep truth. And we find this truth in Ephesians chapter 6, another letter in the New Testament. The author says, our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what are those things? Should we imagine ghosts like swirling around us? Is that who we're fighting off? Maybe. I don't, but some do. That's okay. But I think the, the spirituality, the principalities that we are dealing with are bitterness and hurt and anger and violence and selfishness and greed and fear. Even within the story, Rupert's own fear of growing old, of not being relevant. Like that's the real enemy. And so Rebecca's being ruled by the pain of her divorce. She's being ruled by the spiritual principalities of rejection and fear of no future and humiliation and all of those things. And they were the controlling forces in her life. We might even use the language of possession in our modern world. You and I know the experience of possession. You ever been possessed by something? Don't say you haven't. How many of you finished the dessert when you know you should have stopped halfway through? That's demonic possession, I can tell you right now. Just takes you over the edge. You're hurting. You're wounded after that happens, right? We all know that feeling of the lack of control when something that we desire that we want. And so here's what happens. In episode nine of season one, there's this beautiful, brilliant scene where Rebecca confesses to Ted, right? She comes clean. She tells him everything. So she walks into the office and she makes this confession. This is what she says. She says, Ted, I lied to you. I hired you because I wanted this team to lose. I wanted you to fail. And I sabotaged you every chance I had. And then she goes through and she lists all the things that she had done that had harmed Ted, that had harmed the people, a part of this team. And this is what she says. She says, this club is all that Rupert ever cared about and I wanted to destroy it, to cause him as much pain and suffering as he caused me and I didn't care who I hurt. I didn't care that I hurt all you good people just trying to make a difference. Ted, I'm so, so sorry. And Ted's sitting at a desk and He's just listening and you can see on his face like hurt and pain and disappointment and he stands up and he walks quietly over towards Rebecca and about two feet away from her, she looks at him and says, if you want to quit or call the press, I completely understand. And with his eyes wide, big, looking right at her, with her in his heart, you can see it in his face, he looks right at her and he just says, I forgive you. Rebecca's stunned in that moment, and she just stumbles and says, you what? Why? And here's the big turn. Here's where we see the power of knowing what the real enemy is, that Ephesians 6, 12. And Ted answers with this statement, divorce is hard. It doesn't matter if you're the one leaving or the one who got left. He says, it makes folks do crazy things. Hell, I'm coaching a soccer team for heaven's sakes. It's London. I mean, that's nuts. And the scene ends with, her tell, with him telling her, we're okay. And he offers to shake her hand. And this very powerful, very proper businesswoman 
who has all kinds of space between her and the people around her, refuses the handshake and just collapses into a hug with tears in her eyes. And in that moment, Ted offered Rebecca freedom. Freedom from the controlling power of her pain. Her demon was exercised through love. In the story, the pain of her divorce is still present. Her frustration with Rupert, her hurt, her anger, it's all still there. But you'll notice it doesn't control her anymore. It doesn't control her anymore. So here's what we shouldn't miss. I think the point of this parable, if I can call Ted Lasso a parable, I think the point of what Paul is getting at is that only love given can break the chains of evil received. No matter what you've been a part of in your life, no matter what has happened to me, it is only love that will break the chains that prove to be our bondage. No matter how much we want to seek vengeance, no matter how much we want to hurt that person who's hurt us, no matter how much we want to make things right, that will only tighten the chains. It will only tighten our ability to breathe. And that's why that scene is so beautiful because we get to see in full living color the chains being broken off of Rebecca and the freedom found. The freedom found in forgiveness. And it's because somebody understood her pain. Somebody understood. And so in our everyday, normal, peacemaking lives, when we walk out of here tomorrow, how do we take this and live into it at work, at home, as we co-parent together? Because you've walked through divorce and that pain, and now you're having to deal with it. As you parent together, not divorced, that can be a painful experience sometimes. How many married people are like, amen? (laughs) Don't always see eye to eye on how to parent. Sometimes we say something, we get hurt, and then all of a sudden we just want to punish that person. What do we do? Well, here's the thing. I just want to encourage you to remember, remember that wounds of evil actions from evil actions easily possess us. They will easily take control of our hearts, and they will easily take up residence, and they will destroy us. And as we hold that truth, we have to remember also that boundaries are different than vengeance. A part, and where we've failed in the church oftentimes, is that we have not held that there is a difference between vengeful behavior that wants to inflict pain, inflict and return evil, adequate and equal to what I've experienced, that that is different than a boundary, a boundary that protects our hearts from more unnecessary hurt. So we have counseled people to stay in terrible situations, abusive situations under this idea of just let God work it out, forgive and forget, and people go through a continued cycle of of abuse. And that's not what this is at all saying. And so we have to learn to set those boundaries that can protect our hearts, that can get us out of circumstances. And I want to encourage you to remember that forgiveness flows when we understand the source of someone's pain. It's a great picture. Ted understood, why? Because in the story, Ted is there because he's going through a divorce. He's going through a divorce and that's why he's thousands of miles away from home trying to deal with that own pain in his own life. And so in some way he was able to see himself in Rebecca. 
And then when we struggle with forgiveness, it's because we have an inability to see ourselves in the person we're forgiving. We have an inability to understand the pain that drove a person to those behaviors. And so while forgiveness is the ultimate expression of kindness, and it is ultimately the way in which Jesus still heals us from demon possession, right? It's the way in which we find freedom. It's, it, it's beautiful, but here's the thing. It's not just in the receiving of forgiveness that breaks those chains. What is it? It's in the giving of forgiveness. That there's something about that that frees us. And I would just encourage you to remember this. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Rebecca and Rupert don't become best friends. <laughs> Forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness is the release of a darkness that has tried to extinguish your light long enough. It says, I will no longer allow this thing to steal and to kill and to destroy my joy. I will no longer allow this demon to steal and kill and destroy my future. I will no longer believe that this person is capable of healing me. So when we forgive someone, remember, that doesn't replace the necessary work of therapy in our lives from the pain we've experienced. It doesn't replace restoration that comes through relationships and through soul searching and through healing and therapeutic means when we've experienced deep evil. Forgiveness is simply a catalyst. It acknowledges that the one who has wounded me cannot heal me, and neither can me wounding another person heal me as well. And I know it's kind of weird to ask, like, well, how does this make the world a better place? <laughs> kind of was like, duh. <laughs> but here's what I believe deeply. I believe that evil persists. I believe evil persists in our world. I believe it persists through human hands. And I believe that what our tradition tells us, what the way of Jesus is calling us into, is the only way to slow down the persistence of evil. The only way to stop the persistence of evil is kindness and forgiveness. Kindness and forgiveness. It's the only way to stop the persistence of evil, not out there, <laughs> but in here. Because I don't know about you, but it is in me to take revenge. It's in me to set the record straight. And God has given me the gift of talk. And I can be eloquent with words when I want to be. And I can be thoughtful. But God says, no. Come on, Ryan. It's not going to heal you. It's not going to do anything but make you the very thing you don't want to be. Most beautiful story, one of the most beautiful stories that I've ever heard about this is a gentleman named Rice Buyan. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Rice's story, but Rice was working in a convenience store, and 10 days after 9-11, he was the victim of a horrific hate crime. He was shot in the face at Point Bank Range uh, by a white supremacist named Mark Stroman. Mark Stroman self-described himself as the Arab slayer, yet no one that he killed that day was Arab. Two victims were killed in that, that shooting spree that he walked in. And Stroman was sentenced to death. And 10 years later, after he was sentenced to death, Rice led an international campaign to fight to save his attacker's life. He formed a coalition of Muslims, of Jews, of Christians, of Hindus, of atheists, all together. And they worked hard to try and remove him from death row. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful. But this is what he says in his TEDx talk about that experience. 
He says that when Mark Stroman heard about his campaign and, and all the contributions from the Muslim community, Mark thanked the entire Muslim community and condemned his own act of violence. So powerful. And on the phone, this man convicted, sentenced to death, called Rice his brother. In a statement that Mark released, the shooter, he said, in a free world, I was free, but I was locked up in a prison. And it was inside myself because of the hate I carried in my heart. He said, it's due to Rice's message of forgiveness that I'm more content than I've ever been. Sitting on death row, free from the hate. He wrote a long letter to Rice where he talks about how his stepfather had embedded lessons that he should have never learned. And he said this, he said, I've unlearned some of them and I'm still working on some of them. I don't know who your parents were, but it is obvious they're wonderful people to lead you to act this way. Rice said that it is a profound thing to think about how this person who tried to kill him because of the ways in which they were different learned to see in a way in which they were the same enough to call him brother before he was executed. And Mark in his last words before his execution, they were a call for an end to hatred, saying hate is going on everywhere, it has to stop. Hate causes a lifetime of pain, a lifetime of pain. And this is what Rice says. He says, when I was able to see Mark as a human like me, when I could learn more about his life, what he had gone through, I was able to forgive him. And that took away any hint of bitterness from my heart and allowed me to be whole again. He hated me when he didn't know me, but in the end, he said he loved me. Once you get to know the other, it's hard for you to hate them. See, the reality is, in our world, it, we don't believe it, we don't live it, but forgiveness and kindness are the best chance of stopping the persistence of evil in our hearts and in our world. So what is it that God's inviting you into today? We're gonna sing a couple of songs. We're gonna have communion together, give you some time to just ponder and consider. Where are you in your journey with the pain you've experienced? Maybe God's inviting you to acknowledge that the pain and evil that someone inflicted on you has led you to desire vengeance and it's controlling you. Maybe, maybe God's inviting you to offer forgiveness to someone that has hurt you, that you've like been in their wake of vengeance. Or maybe, maybe God's inviting you to ask forgiveness for someone, to someone. I don't know. Maybe you've got a deep wound in your heart, in your life, and, and you just sense like, oh, he said something like therapy was okay. He said something like maybe prayer wouldn't do it, that maybe I needed to work through some and, and find healing and, and leverage some of these things. And so maybe you just sense God inviting you to reach out to a therapist to support you in your healing from the evil actions that have wounded you so that you don't become a wounder, <laughs> so that you might become a healer. So as we have communion today, everyone's invited, doesn't matter. I, I don't know how else to say, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> You're invited. It doesn't matter if you go to this church. It doesn't matter if you hate God. It doesn't matter if you don't know anything about God. You're invited because this is about love. These elements, the bread and the cup, are our greatest Christian symbols of what is the foundational heartbeat of following Jesus, that everybody's included. That somehow this great mystery of God 
knows us and loves us and responds to us always with love and kindness and grace. And the death of Jesus is this reminder and we interpret it oftentimes as a symbol of the great length in which God, the universe, whatever words you want to use, has done to reconcile our minds, to get past the lie of separation. And so this is where we find our spiritual nourishment to go out and do these things, to not seek revenge, but to forgive. It's this symbol of being empowered and nourished by the acts of Jesus, by the commitments that he made by his understanding of God. And so Jesus demonstrated for us God's love and forgiveness that always has and always will be in our lives because God is present and fully understands us. So you're invited to come and whether you're beginning a journey of faith today, whether you've been on it for a while, this is a good opportunity to just pause and say, what's nourishing me? What's nourishing me? How can I get through the pain, the hurt? How do I stop sending it off into somebody else? This first song that we're going to sing reminds us that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Nothing will ever cause love to be stronger in our lives or less strong. God to love us any more or any less because we're understood completely. And so I want to invite you to stand if you're able to this morning. All of the elements are gluten-free. And you're invited to come and receive these. They're at the tables or if you're in the back, there's some tables as well. And just pause and reflect. Maybe you want to have communion. You want to sit down and be still and be quiet. Do that. You want to stand and sing and worship and have your heart fit, like turned outside of yourself, which is always powerful. But I invite you to come forward now. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.